For more than a century, New York State has had on the books a concealed carry law that permits individuals to carry a weapon only if they demonstrate they have a special need for one to protect themselves from a threat on their lives. But this week, the Supreme Court will hear a challenge to that law from an NRA-affiliated group arguing that such restrictions are an unconstitutional violation of a citizen's right to bear arms. It's a monumental case that gun control advocates fear could end up with the Supreme Court, with its now solid 6-3 conservative majority, knocking down or whittling down the New York state law and a slew of other laws around the country aimed at reducing the country's appalling levels of gun violence. We'll talk to Ryan Bussey and Tim Mack, two authors with new books that offer keen insights into the years-long battle over gun rights and what the Supreme Court case portends for the future on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. We've all been uh, focused in recent weeks about abortion and the abortion cases before the Supreme Court, the Texas law and the Mississippi law and what that could mean for Roe versus Wade. But in doing so, we've kind of forgotten that there are other big cases before the Supreme Court right now. And this gun one strikes, uh, I think, a lot of people as one of the biggest ones of all, because you have a Supreme Court which has already uh, you know, back in 2008 in the Heller decision affirmed that the Second Amendment does protect a citizen's right to bear arms. It's not just about state militias. But now we are going beyond that and looking at whether various laws that have been on the books for decades to restrict gun ownership in some way can be overturned. And the implications of that uh, seem to be quite vast. Yeah, I, this is a case that really has the, the potential to completely rewrite and alter the balance of the way gun laws and guns are regulated in the United States. The Heller decision, which came down in 2008, has mostly been accepted by advocates of gun control and of gun rights to a certain degree, because it seemed to strike a balance. Yes, there's an individual right to carry a gun, but the opinion written by Justice Scalia it clearly indicated that the rights secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. That's actually a direct quote. And it goes on to talk about how there are all sorts of ways that uh, the right to carry a gun can still be regulated by the states. But Scalia is gone. Justice Kennedy, who was a key part of the coalition that created the Heller decision, is gone. And now a kind of more absolute or extremist vision of the Second Amendment is going to be played out in this legislation, one which kind of suggests that the, the right is unlimited, that there are no restrictions. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask you about. Let, let me ask a couple of questions. First of all, there are a lot of states, you know, red states, uh, southern states, uh, that presumably already allow people to just, you know, walk out of their homes with guns, you know, conceal carry laws, you know, all of that. So this is going to apply mostly to blue states, to big cities. And frankly, uh, big cities are a problem because that's, of course, where so much 
crime actually <laughs> occurs. But I guess I guess the question is, so what what comes next after this law? Assuming the Supreme Court does overturn this uh, New York law, I mean, where does the government's right to regulate the use of, of you know and, and the possession of firearms end? I mean. You know, our background. Where does uh, it begin if they strike down this? I mean, right. the question is whether well, there no, will no, be where, any no, restrictions. Where does the right uh, for the government to regulate arms end? Not where does it begin? I mean, at what point does... Will it have the right to do so at all? At I mean, all. Look, That's the point. That's it, the question. Yeah. Well, let the lawyer answer the you question. You can kind of see two, yeah. two particular or, or maybe three particular future areas of kind of expansion of Second Amendment rights. The first, as you point out, Danny, is the background check requirement and whether or not that can be sort of whittled away or made more difficult to impose. The second is there's obviously a large number of laws that limit guns in certain sensitive areas. Like you can't carry a gun within, I think it's 100 yards of a school. You can't, in some states, you're not allowed to bring it into churches. There was a Lopez uh, case, right? Right, exactly. Or government buildings or something like that. So you can sort of begin to see those areas of those gun-free zones sort of being whittled away. And then finally, you could also potentially begin to see the ability of the government to regulate things like automatic weapons being slowly but surely kind of whittled away as well. Yeah. So, um, I mean, uh, most directly, yeah. assuming they uh, the Supreme Court overturns this law, the argument is made, next time you go to Times Square in New York City, you could be surrounded by people carrying loaded weapons because there would be no restriction on them doing so. Here's what I don't understand. I mean, in a, like, a sensible democracy, shouldn't there be some middle ground between, you know, may- maybe the New York state law is a little too onerous. I think the, I don't know what the standard is. It's something like, um, proper, or, proper or good, proper cause. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. Like it's some articulable reason or whatever language lawyers use, but essentially it's a very high standard is what I understand. And now what the Supreme Court is likely to do is basically whittle that away completely. I mean, you know, can't legislatures find some middle ground that then the Supreme Court would uphold? Am I just being Pollyannish and naive about this? Yes, as you often are. Um, but one of the things, you know, Victoria, you mentioned, uh, you know, you get these um, more extreme positions being argued to the Supreme Court. One of the things I did for this podcast is I actually looked at the Supreme Court docket on this case. And one of the uh, amicus briefs I found was from the uh, Claremont Institute uh, Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence, signed by by none other than John Eastman, the uh, architect of insurrection, who uh, argues in this amicus brief before the court that the restriction in New York State impinges on what he calls a pre-constitutional natural right to self-defense, codified in the Second Amendment. But the thrust of the argument is, don't worry about the Second Amendment. There's an inherent natural right to defend yourself and that therefore protects, gives you the right to go around carrying concealed weapons, regardless of what state legislatures might say. Now, that strikes me, this whole natural right theory uh, Victoria, you're the you're the Supreme Court scholar here on the podcast. Uh, this strikes me as going pretty far. 
it's essentially a prescription for lawlessness, right? It's it's anyone who can kind of sort of articulate some sense of their natural given right to do whatever they want is free to essentially be extra constitutional or extra legal because those laws don't respect their quote unquote natural rights. It's lawless. It's, you know, it's yeah. extra constitutional. Well, he he knows he knows something about about being extra <laughs> yeah. constitutional based on the, the <laughs> yeah. two page yeah. memo that he wrote giving uh, Donald Trump the legal rationale for overturning that the government. Vice yeah. President Mike Pence could overturn the results also, of the election. He's, he's, he's incidentally wrong as a matter of of actual law and history, right? Because essentially, from the minute that guns were invented, they were heavily regulated, and there was no kind of. Nat- I mean, even in in kind of colonial era. America guns were heavily regulated because they were highly dangerous. There were statutes that were passed throughout all of the colonies regarding how you had to store your guns, how you had to store ammunition. So he's not only being, you know, kind of dangerously lawless, he's also being fact-free in his explanation of the history of gun ownership in America. Oh, and I should probably say, in the interest of full disclosure, that I did consult with the group that filed a bar complaint against John Eastman. And we should point out that he is about to be, according to the latest report, subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. I hope they do that in public and don't have private depositions. I want to see our last guest, Jamie Raskin, interrogating uh, Professor Eastman, constitutional law professor versus constitutional law professor. Anyway, a battle that we will uh, relish uh, in the future. But right now, we've actually got two great guests to talk about the years-long battle over gun rights in this country. Ryan Bussey was a member in good standing of the gun industry for years until he had an epiphany about uh, the destructive role it was playing in our country. And Tim Mack, a great investigative reporter for NPR, has a new book out about the NRA and all its troubles called Misfire. So let's get to it. We now have with us the authors of two new books about guns in America. Ryan Bussey, the author of Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America, and Tim Mack of NPR, the author of the new book Misfire about the NRA. Ryan and Tim, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, Long-time listener, uh, first-time guest, so uh, this is great. Excellent, excellent. Tim, I want to start out with you because the Supreme Court is about to take up a case that's really challenging how far gun restrictions can go in this country. And it's brought by an NRA affiliate, basically, against the concealed carry law in New York State. And What strikes me about this is in 2008, the Supreme Court in the Heller decision for the first time declared that uh, the Second Amendment protected the personal right to own firearms. It was not just about a militia. And uh, we've seen more and more laws passing across the country expanding gun rights. And if the Supreme Court, in this case, rules in the favor of the plaintiffs, it will go much further than it's been before. And yet all of this is happening during a period 
that the NRA has basically been self-destructing, as you document in the book. And I just want to get your take on that. How is it that at a time the most powerful force for gun rights, you know, is exposed by you and others as a complete, you know, corrupt scam, gun rights seem to be flourishing in this country? Yeah, you're right. And let's start with kind of some of the major problems the NRA is facing right now. Huge financial problems. You know, they're having real trouble with fundraising and moving political spending. They've got a revolt among some of its members, a revolt from some of their directors. They've got the New York Attorney General trying to dissolve the entire organization. And as you point out, there's this really interesting Supreme Court case that is now developing. And it speaks to how the NRA has changed the conversation over gun policy over the last few decades. I mean, in 1986, just nine states allowed concealed carry to happen. Now, all states in some form or another allow concealed carry. The case that is going to be discussed before the Supreme Court is whether the New York state's process for concealed carry is constitutional, not whether or not there should be concealed carry. So the whole debate over the conversation around gun policy and gun rights in America has been dramatically changed by the NRA over the last few decades in a way that's kind of even self-continuing, self-revolving, even with the NRA in this very difficult position, the people, its members, its state affiliates are still carrying on that fight. Right. And just one thing that just leapt out of me in reading up on the Supreme Court case, this New York state law about concealed carry goes back to 1913. It's been on the books for more than a century, and now the Supreme Court is hearing arguments that it's unconstitutional. Ryan, your take on the significance of this particular Supreme Court challenge being brought by an NRA affiliate and what happens, what do you expect the Supreme Court will do, and what impact will it have if the same Supreme Court overturns that New York state law? Yeah, so I think Tim obviously knows the the backstory of the NRA inner workings. Um, and I think, you know, I make the point in the book, in my book, that the politics that we are experiencing today as a nation are the politics of the NRA and the gun industry. I lived inside that and it was essentially handed off to the to the Trump right. Um, and that became the politics of our country. I believe that the I think all observers here expect to be a favorable ruling for the NRA. I think I think that the the case will result in a further weakening of New York gun regulations. But I I don't really think the case is about that per se. I think there's a really dangerous undertone in the country now. And, I'm, and I make this point too, that we're headed towards this. Um, the NRA doesn't know when to quit winning, right? We're headed towards this place of what they call second amendment absolutism, which means in gun lingo, there literally can be no restriction on any sort of gun ownership in the country. That that little shall not be infringed phrase in the second amendment has now been taken literally by a dangerous kind of radicalized cadre of these sort of empowered extremists. And I guess that means they believe, you know, kids should have howitzers at playgrounds. I, I don't know, but that's that's really what the trajectory of this is. It's about weakening every single regulation on guns everywhere all the time. Ryan, I want to follow up with what you were saying about the NRA changing American politics. And just to pick up what Tim said, uh, I think you said that the NRA has changed the conversation. But Ryan, you argue more than just that that they've changed our politics. The NRA has, in some ways, changed our culture. And this move toward 
radicalism and extremism in our in our politics, I think, follows uh, from cultural shifts and notions of identity. How did that happen? How did guns become a kind of radicalized religion in this country? Well, I started. I wasn't always the advocate I am now to fix this, right? I was associate. I grew up with guns on a ranch. Part of the first part of my book is explaining to people who may not understand how is it that these cultural identity touchstones become so wrapped up in our politics. And I saw that many of the best days of my life and many of the best days of, you know, flyover pejorative here, flyover countries, people's lives is associated with guns. They represent things that people want to be true or that they wish to be true. And when you have something that touches a culture that careful that, you know, that closely, then an entity like the NRA can twist that into once you believe that it can be taken away, then fear and conspiracy theory, racist undertones, all those things can be used to gin people up to fight for it. And they'll literally sacrifice anything to fight for it. So when Trumpism came along and people, it appears now, will literally sacrifice anything for this guy there, now even the democracy, right? Many of the January 6th flags, there were two types of flags. There were Trump MAGA flags, and then there were AR-15 type flags. They'll sacrifice anything for this, even the democracy. So I really wasn't surprised when I saw Trumpism come along. And I wish I was more surprised uh, with January 6th. But I've been living inside the kitchen where this was cooked up for so long. And, and, and Tim's book probably deals with a fair amount of that, too. So one thing that, that sort of seems to happen in the, the cycle of America's gun culture is a, a kind of a, a let's call it a yin and yang or kind of an oppositional quality. Gun sales go up the minute a Democrat gets elected. And they're, um, I'm wondering how the NRA, for, for example, 2020, in the midst of an election where people thought Biden was likely to win, I think was the highest year of gun sales in in recent history in America. In United States history by a long shot. And, and 2021 is on pace to maybe keep track with 2020. How does kind of American Democrat versus Republican politics drive gun sales? There's two types of things that drive gun sales in America. And, and as a firearms executive, I can tell you that everybody in the business wants to believe it's because of, of business genius and product development and advertising and those things. But the, the historical cycles are very clear. When there's threat of taking something away, it drives sales. When there is tragedy that might result in threat of taking something away, it drives sales. And then when there is fear in the world, it drives sales. And if you don't put that all together real quickly, I could tell you those are exactly the same things that drive elections now for the far right, right? And Trumpism. And it's not an accident that the overlay of what drives gun sales, either purposefully or accidentally, is exactly the same thing that drives elections now for the Republican Party. One of the ironies of why the NRA finds itself where it is now is that it spent its years during the Obama era getting flush with donations and contributions from people who are worried about how the Obama administration might view guns. They spent a ton of money on electing Donald Trump. I mean, they spent more money supporting Donald Trump than Trump's own super PAC did in 2016. $30 million, as I recall. After Trump comes in, their fundraising falls off a cliff. And that creates all sorts of pressures on the organization. They get a cash crunch. They can hardly pay their own staff. And that begins to expose some of the corrupt spending that has been happening inside the National Rifle Association, private jets, uh, exotic trips to Europe, six figures in suits for CEO Wayne LaPierre. All of those pressures 
start to bubble up and expose some of this corruption. Yet, as Mike pointed out, this lawsuit that the Supreme Court is going to hear on Wednesday is not brought by the NRA. It's brought by an affiliate of the NRA. And is the NRA's troubles, you know, are, are in other words, are there a lot of kind of Me Too organizations, different kind of Me Too organization, kind of NRA-like organizations, some even more radical than the NRA popping up? Yeah, there certainly are. And I think, again, not to beat this horse to death too badly, but this is exactly what we see in our politics now, right? The only place that the Republican has, the Republican Party has to worry about is being outflanked on the right by something more right-wing than the Republican Party. Well, that's exactly what the NRA has to worry about. It is, I think, I really believe it was kind of accidental at first, sort of this, well, let's try conspiracy theory. Oh man, that worked. People believed it. Well, let's try, why don't we try uh, forgiving racist tendencies and hatred and, oh, that worked. It was sort of like, well, maybe we can stay warm by this little campfire. And now all of a sudden it's this raging brush fire and it's dry and windy across the country. And I think to your original question, Mike, how is it that we're here now, even though the NRA is weakened? Well, this fire that has been let across the country is not going away, even if the original source is a little weaker. I don't think we can ignore that, you know, 10 years ago, there were quite a number of you know, moderate Democrats that were endorsed by the NRA, that uh, the NRA was happy to help support in its campaigns. And over the last decade, particularly with this turning point of Sandy Hook and the failure of the Manchin-Toomey gun legislation, the NRA has really changed, has made a strategic decision to double down on just reaching out to conservatives and Republicans and doubling down on a culture war method in order to raise a lot of money and uh, mobilize its most dedicated supporters. And yet, Tim, we have a Democratic president, a Democratic-controlled Congress, by a very small margin, but these are in control. And gun legislation, even after all these mass shootings, after all the sickening images we've seen from Sandy Hook and elsewhere, is going nowhere. It's not even talked about at the moment on Capitol Hill. It's way down on the agenda, and at a time that the NRA as a lobbying force is a lot weaker than it was. How do you explain that? I'd love Ryan's view on this as well. But I think that, you know, that a lot of critics of the NRA think that, mistakenly think that it's, you know, it gets its power from gun manufacturers or the trade industry or millions of dollars going from you know, Smith and Wesson or whatever to the NRA, when in fact the power of the NRA comes from its millions of members and its ability to mobilize those folks. What scares lawmakers on Capitol Hill is not money per se, although money helps. It's getting their switchboards lit up by millions of people, their constituents are getting yelled at at a town hall, and the NRA is still able to do that. It would really be a mistake to think it's primarily about money. And the NRA is in a real bad financial state right now, but it can still mobilize a lot of people. And it's that implicit threat that may, that retains the NRA's relevance. Yeah, Tim's exactly right on that. And, um, you know, there are several misconceptions. I think that one is a big one that just because the NRA spreads money around, that's where their political power comes from. You know, th that's the oil that greases the skids. But the real power, as, as Tim mentions, is this religious single issue voter 
loudest, biggest guy with the mic in the room, right? Again, if it sounds like Trumpism, it's because it is Trumpism. They created that. It's the same. It's this tyranny of the minority sort of thing. I believe that the majority of gun owners in America are not down with this. I believe that things like the January 6th insurrection, the armed men who invaded the Capitol in Michigan and Kentucky and Virginia, I think this has pushed a lot of moderates to the edge. And I, I believe that it's that that will break the power of the NRA way more so than the financial problems, because Tim is right. I'm in Montana right now. And if there was an NRA banquet this evening, I can tell you it would be bursting at the seams. It would be filled to capacity because the, the rank and file grassroots supporters of the NRA, they don't know or care if Wayne LaPierre has spent $10,000 on a suit in the same way that the Trump base doesn't know or care what Trump has, what malfeasance he's done. Again, the parallels are scary. So, Tim, we, we were all fascinated by your portrait of Wayne uh, LaPierre in, in your book, who has you know presided over the NRA, probably the most powerful interest group in this country, you know, for a generation, and yet, as you describe him in the book, he's kind of spineless, he's conflict averse, he's full of anxieties, scared uh, of his own shadow. He, he's scared. He <laughs> and can't do it. He gun. runs yeah. away. He runs away <laughs> from crisis, including doubts about his own wedding, where he literally <laughs> disappeared and no one knew where he was. So it's sort of a part of the, the paradox at the heart of your book. How is it? And maybe it explains to some extent how this organization is now imploding. But how is it that this he's been able to preside over uh, such a and, and help build such a powerful organization for all of these years, given that set of personality traits? You know, what was so interesting is one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book, right, was that while we talk a lot about the NRA and the NRA makes a lot of news, it's kind of a black box. It's one of the most powerful organizations in America. We know very little about the personalities, the history, what happens behind the scenes, what happens in the conference rooms where they're having these arguments about how to take gun policy in the future. And so, you know, through this book, I try to pull back the curtain on what's happening and what the personality is like, what is Wayne LaPierre like? And how is Susan LaPierre, his wife, this secret hidden hand behind the scenes controlling a lot of what the NRA does? And so we did, you know, uh, over 120 interviews with folks inside the NRA universe. And we got thousands of pages of secret depositions and uh, internal emails and other documents that, to, to create this portrait. So the question is, you know, how does... How does Wayne LaPierre seem to fail upwards at every stage? He's now been at the top of the NRA for some 30 years. And I think what I'm getting to is though he's anxious, he's a pushover, he's selfish and, and scared, he's also, because of his malleability, made himself indispensable to all the people around him who benefit from his being easily berated into doing what they want whether that's vendors who get millions of dollars in a non-compete contracts or a lawyer who is billing the, uh, the NRA for tens and tens of millions of dollars. He's kind of pushed himself to a position where if he loses out, if he's pushed out, a lot of people around him stand to lose a lot. You know, just picking up on a point Ryan made about how the NRA and Wayne LaPierre anticipated or laid the groundwork for uh, Trumpism, that really rings true to me. I, I have attended NRA conventions over the years, watched LaPierre uh, speak, and it's, it, it is 
all about us versus them. Those people not like us are coming after you and the rest of us, and we've got to defend ourselves. You know, I got to say the connection, Tim, one passage in your book really leapt out uh, at me uh, uh, along these lines. I'm going to Read it. In 1994, LaPierre writes, or rather approves, a ghost-written book called Guns, Crime, and Freedom with a foreword by Tom Clancy. Uh, LaPierre didn't write the book or really much of anything. It was never certain enough to know. He was never certain enough to know what to say. That's where Ackerman McQueen, the PR firm, came in. They write the book. And the book was a surprise success, the most popular title in that date in his publisher Regnery's 47-year history, Stephen Miller who would grow up to become one of Trump's closest aides and the architect of Trump's immigration policy, credits the book with making him a conservative. Wow, right there, you see it. And the idea that something with Warren LaPierre's name on it could have um, inspired the likes of Stephen Miller. Explain, I'd like to hear from both of you on the parallels between the NRA's brand of politics and what we saw under Donald Trump. I'll start with that. I, you know, my book is about me living inside this thing as at first a true believer or at first somebody who didn't doubt I was in the industry for 25 years. I was a high level executive and and I knew these people on a first name basis. And I can tell you the basic, I saw the basic building blocks of this, what we now call Trumpism or, or Republican politics taking place in and about that mid 2000s point and then on past Sandy Hook, which happened in 2012. But the first, I think, was the outright use of conspiracy theory. And again, I think that the NRA sort of stumbled onto this because I would see LaPierre in these speeches that you note when Mike say things like, Barack Obama is going to rewrite the Constitution, it, almost like a sticking a finger in the air. And then and then everybody laughed and, and they must have been thinking, oh, my gosh, they believed it. Well, let's try another one. Barack Obama will outlaw hunting ammunition. But, and it just keeps going on and on and on. And it's almost like they felt like they had a live one that I also tell multiple stories about the sort of excusal of outright racism as a way to hate the other or a way to gin people up. I don't mean to say that I saw gun executives walking down aisles with white hoods. That's not what I saw. But I saw people wearing, you know, just overtly racist T-shirts and half of the convention giving them high fives or asking where they could buy them. Like I note one in the book that where there's a picture of a, a large lion, then a picture of Obama. And over the one picture, it says African lion. Then on the bottom, it says lion African. Um, and that was right during the birther sort of uh, fiasco, right? That was happening at the NRA before Trumpism, as we know it, was even a flicker in anybody's eye. And then just the last one is this creation of the other, this creation of the church of sameness, this we're all the same, we're all in it together, everybody else is evil. I note I was one of the other, right, by the time I write many of these stories in my book. And um, there was no, there's no room for 99% you know, pro NRA or pro gun. It's either a hundred percent or zero. And those tactics, which are, happen to be also classic totalitarian tactics were the same things that created NRA ism. And then the same things that created Trumpism. So I'd love what Tim has to say, but that from the inside, that's certainly what I felt. In retrospect, the alignment between the NRA and the MAGA movement and Trump supporters seems really obvious, but in, in 2016, maybe a little less so. But if you look back, you could see all sorts of evidence that aligns with this. You know, Misfire goes behind the scenes to get into the conversations about how Trump became endorsed by the NRA. And in fact, endorsed earlier than any other candidate 
that the NRA has ever endorsed. Usually in the past, you think about other Republican presidential candidates that the NRA has endorsed, Romney or McCain. The NRA had to drag its membership to support it. They had to convince its base, oh, you should back Romney, you should back McCain. But in 2016, what you see is the base is already there. And if anything is even more fervently supportive of Donald Trump than the NRA itself is. Uh, one interesting fact from Misfire is that after the Access Hollywood tapes are released and you see everyone abandoning Donald Trump, Republicans all trying to distance themselves, the NRA actually increases its ad buy for Donald Trump realizes that this is going to pass and that they need Trump in the White House. That really shows you the alignment between the NRA's interests and the Trump campaign and the Trump movement. Is this conflict unavoidable? I mean, is there any approach to the membership of the NRA or to the kind of gun-loving gun America that could find compromise or common ground? Or is this just a complete standoff between two groups of people who will never see anything in common? I believe, Victoria, that we're it, it's actually going to arise. I think that the NRA and the NSSF, the industry, may have jumped the shark because in the last 18 months, Tim is absolutely right. I note um, all the stories he tells in, in Misfire. Um, I'm telling from the inside in Gunfright, and, and he's precisely right. I said at very high-level fundraising events where I was just aghast at raising $5 million, where Trump Jr. would raise $5 million in a few minutes, right? But I think that finally... Guns have entered a space, the radicalization of guns have entered a space where there may be schisms in this uh, community because responsible gun owners, as we noted earlier, are not okay with armed 30 round mag tactical guys threatening governors in Michigan and screaming at lawmakers and, you know, frightening kids on street corners and then marching into our capital to upend our democracy. They really are not okay with that. I think that has opened people's eyes to, to say, okay. We're gun owners, but we're not that kind of gun owner. So I, I believe that when the shift comes, it will come because the NRA just frankly pushed it too far. I think the question is, has the NRA tapped out in terms of how many more Americans it can bring into the fold with this strategy that they're this kind of no compromise strategy that they're pursuing? Right now, they've got about 4.9 million members. This is pretty static over the last few years. Can they grow? I mean, as an organization, they're looking at serious fundraising problems, and they're looking at a New York attorney general who is seeking in court right now an order to dissolve the organization completely. Ryan, uh, one of the things that's so compelling about your book is your personal tale of being inside the belly of the beast. And I want to ask you about two, two scenes in the book or two episodes, sort of inflection points. I'll ask the first one and then I'll follow up with the second one. The first one is when you led a kind of led a boycott of Smith and Wesson after the gun manufacturer agreed to some safety measures in the wake of the Columbine um, uh, tragedy. What was driving you at the time? What were you thinking when you did that? Yeah, so I and thanks Dan, you know, my story is a memoir and it's the truth of my life. And I grew up in flyover country. I grew up during the rise of right-wing Rush Limbaugh radio. I drove tractors around in a field and grain trucks. And, and so that poured into my head. And I think it had a big influence on me. And, and by the time I got to college, I, you know, I was a pretty good student, but I was a contrarian thinker. And, um, or at least I thought I was right. I was pushing it back against these elites, these people who aggrieve people like me are supposed to distrust. And when I, and so the gun industry like was a perfect spot for me. And 
when we were told we were, it wasn't as bad as it is now, obviously, but even then this, we are to hate the other sort of culture was in the air. And so when Smith and Wesson, when Ed Schultz, I tell the story in the book, uh, very detailed about when he jumped up on the stage with Bill Clinton and announced that he was going to, that Smith and Wesson was going to cut a deal to institute um, gun safety restrictions with the hope of sort of imposing it on the industry. Here I was this sort of aggrieved kid thought I was the conservative kid. And I, I just jumped to help. Right. And I did lead this boycott, which ended up being investigated by the federal trade commission. And so this ranch kid from Western Kansas found himself in a New York city courthouse with very powerful attorneys staring down my throat. But when that didn't, when all the boogeyman stuff didn't come to pass, I started asking myself, wait, am I, am I doing somebody else's bidding here? Am I, is this, is this battle just blown up to make us all fear each other and hate each other and believe there's a big boogeyman? And is there really one? So yeah, that story's in the book and, and I appreciate you. But, but your, uh, but your actual awakening, it sounds like you attribute to your wife, Sarah, who helped kind of push you to reexamine your values and assumptions. And, um, this was also after Columbine, where she asked you whether you thought you were complicit in that tragedy. That must have been tough to hear. Well, we've had a lot of tragedies, and a lot of people at a lot of gun companies should have a lot of hard days about whether they were complicit in these things. I certainly did. It got to the point where every time the web banner started to run, many of us started to worry, was our gun in that shooting? Obviously, Sandy Hook was just a you know unbelievably, especially for us. For the most part, we were a bunch of same looking white guys with young families and kids about the age of those kids at Sandy Hook. And that was a very difficult thing to take. But yeah, I was blessed with a, a spouse I married out of my league and, and she helped, you know, she helped me. But I also note stories in the book where I realized that I had been sucked into th thinking that this whole entity was loyal to me and loyal to the things that it said it was loyal to. And I realized those are just ploys to pull people like me in and anything can be sacrificed as long as it's to create more partisan power. So that's sort of my shift in the, in the book. And I'm sorry, I said, I said Columbine, I meant to say Sandy Hook. Yeah. So I want to go back to Wednesday's argument in before the Supreme Court, because, you know, for literally hundreds of years before 2008's Heller decision, federal courts had almost uniformly held that there was no individual right to bear arms and uh, most uh, gun control legislation was upheld by the courts, with a, with a few notable exceptions, one that I made happen, unfortunately. And, well, explain uh, that. And so that was a, that was a, yeah, that was U.S. v. Lopez, the uh, the case that struck down the Gun Free School Zones Act we're, under we're, under we're, Commerce did you Clause. Draft a Supreme Court opinion. I, that no, I, I secretly or? drafted the law that got struck down. So there's been a transfer in as much as the NRA has led a transformation of its base with conspiracy theories. It's also had an equally dramatic impact on the judiciary and on the Supreme court. And I'm Tim, I'm wondering if you can tell us about how the NRA and the gun rights forces drove an alteration in the composition of the federal judiciary. Well, a lot of this comes back to a few years ago with the death of Antonin Scalia. Right. And we talked a little bit about the 2016 campaign and how the NRA was fully mobilized in order to the candidacy of Donald Trump. And the reason, one of the reasons was their base was just ferociously in favor of Donald Trump. But from an NRA perspective, from a lobbying perspective, they felt that if Hillary Clinton were elected, that that would be the end of 
gun rights in America, at least from, from their point of view. And so they double down. They spend a, an incredible amount of money, unprecedented amount of money on supporting Donald Trump. And even when the Access Hollywood tapes come out and everyone else is abandoning them, they push in even further. And it's it's actually worth noting, if I, if I can just jump in, Mike, that one of the more interesting things about Scalia is, is that in as much as he authored the majority opinion in Heller, he also wrote a paragraph in Heller that's actually kind of pretty critical to allowing ongoing gun regulation. And so it was it was actually kind of in some ways uh, Scalia's death that allowed and, and Kennedy's retirement that allowed the Supreme Court to be packed with, you know, kind of even more pro-gun right justices. Sorry, I'm, I'm not asking a question. I'm, I'm acting as a, <laughs> as a witness, which, <laughs> which maybe, uh, maybe violates um, the, the rules of co-hosting, but I did it. <laughs> on, uh, on the 2016 election and the NRA and Trump connection, uh, Tim, of course, one big line of inquiry for a lot of us, myself included, but you uh, at the forefront, was the Russia connection to the NRA. And, you know, we saw that play out in the criminal prosecution of Maria Butina. Tell us what that was all about. And I should point out that I know that at least when I started down that road, the suspicion was that the Russians may have been pouring money into the NRA that was being used to help elect Trump, which would have been blatantly illegal if true. That doesn't seem to have panned out, but there were extensive connections between the NRA and the Russians and the Russian government itself. Talk about that, what, was, what you were able to prove and show in the book and what didn't pan out. You know, I entered this book writing process very much along the lines of what you just outlined, right? That there's this ruthlessly efficient and effective NRA, and they're super competent, and they're out there with this grandmaster strategy. And that that could involve, you know, did they get money from the Russians? So Maria Butina is, is someone who was a Russian citizen who ends up in Washington, D.C., and finds herself infiltrating the National Rifle Association. While the suspicion has been that Russia gave the NRA money, what you eventually find out is that a, that a bumbling, ineffective NRA finds itself being so malleable that it's kind of pushed around by Maria Butina, who uses the NRA, its connections, its money, in order to achieve her ends. She ends up benefiting quite a bit in terms of her networking and her ability to make things happen in Washington, D.C. because of the National Rifle Association's most senior leaders giving her money, offering her private jet rides, and things like that. And so ultimately, she becomes charged with acting as a unregistered agent for the Russian government. She serves some time, and she's ultimately deported. One thing that's interesting in, in Misfire is that as this is all happening, the Russian government is interfering with the 2016 elections in terms of disinformation and its its work in social media. And there is a very kind of intriguing footnote in the Senate Intelligence Committee's investigation into this matter, which refers to Maria Butina and the, the Russian troll farms in St. Petersburg, suggesting there is some link between what she had been doing and what the broader Russian government. 
I missed that in the Senate Intelligence Committee report. I'm going to I'm going to look for it. Ryan, what about the the connections, if there are, between the gun industry and manufacturers and in Russia and uh, and Russian interests? Again, all of this foreshadowed by a few years what we saw with the sort of Russian infiltration in right wing politics. I remember in the mid 2000s, as everybody in the industry referred to President Obama as the best gun salesman in America, right? They didn't they didn't use his name, but they called him the best gun salesman in America. So as as the sales boom was happening, there was a supply crunch for products. Well, there's a lot of ammunition made in Russia. And so it wasn't uncommon for me to hear about executives or NRA people or just industry insiders flying to Russia to cut um, ammunition deals and to import or brand Russian ammunition in the United States. That became a very, very big business. And again, how much of that, you know, sort of, I think Tim is right. It's almost sort of bumbling and accidental, but there were a lot of Russian characters in and out of industry trade events prior to 2016. And much like the politics that I think the NRA developed, I think they sort of stumbled onto this and then were surprised by how well it worked, again, much like Trumpism. So uh, this is a question for both of you. Years ago, when I did a little bit of reporting on the NRA, I I do recall that the organization could be pretty ruthless about going after reporters uh, that were digging into what was going on inside the organization. I, I remember tangling quite a bit with a woman named Jennifer Baker, I think. I'm not sure if she's still there. You guys have uh, written very tough books. Yours, Tim, frontally about the NRA, but Ryan, you're pretty tough on the NRA as well. Did you have any dealings with the organization other than your sources, obviously, but official official representatives of the organization? Did they come after you? Uh, are they coming after you now? Or are they so weakened that this is a battle that, that they can't fight in the same way that they did in the past? Uh, Tim, why don't you start? Yeah, Daniel, I kind of approached this reporting process with the precautions that you might take with the conception of, of the way the NRA might act. Um, and so source protection was kind of the number one thing. You know, there's an interesting story. I mean, I wrote this book in the middle of the pandemic. And one of the real breakthroughs for me in the writing of this book was in around the March, April, 2020 timeframe, right? Right when everything locked down, a source said, the source had, let's say hundreds, uh, thousands of pages actually, of secret depositions that the source was willing to leak to me. But this was at the absolute worst time during the pandemic to meet with anyone. So I rented a moped and I drove around DC for hours and meet this person in a parking lot quite far away from where I live in DC. And the source kind of just rolls down the window and says the documents are in the passenger seat. And so I reach in, <laughs> grab the documents, and then I drive off on my moped. Great moments in journalism. Uh, that will be the, that'll it. be a great scene in the movie. Yes. I think I think I've heard of a reporter who met a secret source in a parking lot before. Yes, a who was that? Gar- I think he's been on our podcast. It was a garage. <laughs> All right. to be, close uh, enough. To close enough. What about you, Ryan? Well, I've um Yes, I've had a lot of dealings with the NRA, and I think, and you don't have to, I, I came into our house the other evening, and my one of my young sons informed me that there are hundreds of pages of, on the internet about how I should be dismembered and, you know, tortured in various ways, beheaded. Um, there are YouTube channels about me, and 
And while that may not seem like the NRA is coming after me with, with these sort of people with these NRA business cards, that's much like the politics of today. That's, that's how the totalitarian state for anybody like me operates, right? Anybody who steps out of a line a little bit, you'll be trolled, you'll be fired, you'll be persecuted. And again, to foreshadow the politics that we have today for people like Alexander Vindman or Fiona Hill or the various people who have stepped out of line, the same thing happens to them. But I, because the story in Gunfight is also about me fighting against the NRA in various ways and the firearms industry for various ways, even though I was within it, it's not a new thing for me to be trolled. I mean, I tell the story in the book, my wife after Parkland, makes a social media post where she's critical of the NRA and that, and that nothing is being done. And it took literally an hour for the domestic troll farm, which is essentially powered by, by NRA radicals, to come after her, to threaten my livelihood, to try to get me fired, to post all sorts of ugly stuff. So I'm pretty used to, the, to that sort of activity. Tim, one uh, a fascinating and surprising figure in your book is Oliver North who plays a critical role after becoming president of the NRA in exposing the corruption of LaPierre and company. Tell us about North's role and how that came about. Look, so Oliver North comes in committed to the ideals of the National Rifle Association, but he didn't want to just be a figurehead. So he was assigned and elected to be the president of the National Rifle Association. Uh, he wanted to be involved in fixing the NRA's financial problems at the time. But the more he learned about the finances of the NRA, the more he realized just how deep the corruption inside the organization ran. And that brought him into this climactic confrontation with Wayne LaPierre in a hotel suite in Indianapolis, where they go after each other and Wayne LaPierre maneuvers so that he can push uh, Oliver North out of the NRA and, and Oliver North ultimately resigns as president or steps back as president of the NRA. Yeah, I thought it was a, a, a fascinating insight that this was almost a matter of personal redemption for Ollie North, who, of course, had uh, fallen uh, from grace uh, during the Iran-Contra scandal. All he wanted to be, I think you said, was a, a U.S. Marine officer. And here was an opportunity for him to do the right thing. One of the things that uh, Ollie North was accused of during the Iran-Contra scandal was, you know, mismanagement of a nonprofit, a legal movement of funds uh, with a nonprofit. And here he was entering the NRA. He knew there were problems inside the NRA, but he didn't realize just how deep the financial rot, mismanagement, and allegedly illegal activity inside the NRA had gotten. And so when he arrives, he sees, boy, this is a lot more trouble than I, I realized I was going to get into. Well, I think North is very illustrative of some changes that I note. And after after Iraq and Afghanistan, or after you know Afghanistan started and Iraq was over the, the wars, the NRA tapped into this idea of this sort of faux machismo patriotism that we see now so often um, displayed in in some of the right wing rallies. And because you had all these returning soldiers, you had Medal of Honor winners that were elevated, and and Somebody like North was very critical to the whole sort of message and feel of the NRA events, because here you have this trusted right wing culture warrior, but also a soldier that so many people could identify with. And that sort of 
militarism, almost a sort of proto-fascist sort of belief in marrying guns with our military and praising all of them. That was important. And so I was shocked kind of that North fell as fast as he did, but I, I think it should be a sign about how strong LaPierre's hold is on, on the NRA itself. Well, a lot to uh, dissect in all this, uh, and I should add for the benefit of our listeners, these are both really well-written books, and um, uh, you know the subject might seem a little dry to some or uh, hashed over, but I got lo- lots of amazing insights. And I will um, say they are actually kind of deeply complimentary. So if you buy one, you need to buy the other. <laughs> That's what we're here for Thanks, on Skullduggery. And promote, you should, and I say you should buy both. You right. should buy both. You should buy both. Anyway, uh, Tim and Ryan, thanks for joining us. The books are Gunfight by Ryan Bussey and Misfire by Tim Mack. Thank you. Thanks so much, folks. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.